today. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you, pull them out. If you need to grab a Bible out of the pew rack, we're going to be on page 955 in the book of Colossians. As you turn, let me remind you that we are in this series that we're calling Lied To. And it's a series where we're looking at some of the lies that Satan wants to get you and me to buy into that he might lead us away from, get us off track from following God and experiencing the life of fullness and blessing and joy and transformation that God has for us in Christ. And so today we are considering another lie, another area where Satan enjoys lying to us, and that is in the area of our identities. Satan loves to lie to you and me about what is at the core of who we really are. And in our passage today, the passage we're diving into in Colossians, we're going to learn a few things. We're going to learn the truth about our identity. We're going to learn what it looks like to live out of that identity, what happens when we do that. And then finally, we're going to talk about how we can embed our true identity, the identity God longs for us to have, deeper and deeper into our minds and hearts. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to go through verse 17. Um, There's a lot in here, and I may do some backtracking along the way. But if you have your Bibles, just stay with me. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's how Paul begins this section of Scripture. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And the very first word of this section is the word therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore, what you know is that Paul is tagging onto, he's building on something he has just been talking about in the previous section. And if you look back just a little bit in Colossians, what you'll find is that Paul has been talking in this section right before this, about how these Colossian Christians have, even though they have received Christ, and even though they are now followers of Jesus, and even though they are now in the church, they have continued to let old, earthly identities define who they are and how they relate to one another. They have this new identity available to them in Christ, and yet they keep going back to their old, earthly identities. In fact, if you back up one verse, Paul is sort of railing against this. He's, he's, he's rebuking this. He's, he's letting them know just how bad this is. And in verse 11, he says, here, and here, by the way, is in the church. Here means amongst people who are following Jesus together. Here, he says, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all And is in all. You see, in this church, there are still people who first and foremost thought of themselves and found their identities in these other cultural categories. And Paul makes it very clear that is not God's will. That these kinds of barriers, that these kinds of social divisions have no place in the church of Jesus Christ because that is not what ultimately defines us. And and, and before we move on to talk about what Paul says does define us, and that's what he's going to get into here in this next section, I was thinking this week, what if Paul were writing to us? What, What if instead of the 
you know, the book of Colossians, we were in like Cedar Millions. Um, and Paul was writing this letter. He was tailor making it to us. And he was saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking at you, church, and there are still some identity issues. There's still some things that you are latched onto, that you are, are kind of holding onto in terms of your identity, and they are dividing you. What are the things that Paul would write to us specifically? Because even though the Bible is really good and super useful, I don't know if anyone in here is really wrestling with like being a Scythian deep down in the core of their soul. Are they? Anyone? Any barbarians in here? So, so what? A few, a few over in this area. So a few, um, a few things I think Paul might mention if he were writing to us. And this is just for me, but I, I'd wager that I, I'm pretty close. I think Paul might say something like, Cedar Mill, amongst you, there should be no young or old, no married or unmarried, No division between people with children and couples who don't have children. There should be no division between males and females, Democrats and Republicans. People who are homeschool families and people who send their kids to public school. Spanish speakers and English speakers, hymn lovers and contemporary worship cravers. None of these things, I believe Paul would say, are worth finding your identity in and they should not divide you. Other people, other places, the world may find value in these categories, but not so with you, church. And the reason Paul will give for this is because the place where we should find our ultimate identity is so much greater than these things. One lie that Satan so badly wants Christians to buy into is this. It's okay to settle for a lesser identity. You've got Christ. You've found salvation. You've prayed the prayer. You've received Him. Now it's okay to just live your life and settle for a lesser identity. After all, it's a good thing to be a parent, isn't it? And that's really the thing that defines me. It's not so bad. That's a great identity. It's awesome to be successful. Everyone wants to be successful. God wants me to be successful, right? It's okay if that's way down deep in there. I mean, the song says it after all. Who can argue with this song? I am proud to be an American. Right? How many of us just have that and all that's entangled with it woven deep into the core of our identities? And Paul says these things aren't bad. They're not terrible identities. But they must not be your primary identity. But Satan says, no, 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 no. It's okay to settle for a lesser identity. Paul says no. He says there's something so much more, so much greater, so much richer, something that will lead you into a life that actually deep in your heart you've always longed for. And he, he uses these words to talk about this identity. He says, this is, this is where, where it's found. He says, Christ is all and is in all. You want to know where you find the ultimate Identity that God longs for you to have and lean on and buy into, it's in Christ. If you are a Christian, the truth about your identity is that God says it is now in Christ. 
This is actually what Paul talks about in a very personal way. He writes this letter to a church in Galatia called Galatians. And this is a group of people that Paul knows well and he feels really vulnerable with. And so he talks about his own identity-shaping journey and how God is forming his identity in Paul. And this is what Paul says about it. He's talking about his identity journey. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Not the old identities, not my identities, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I want to be really clear about where I find my ultimate identity and it is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my core. That's at the center of who I am. And then Paul reiterates this in verse 12 for the Colossians. He says, don't find your identity in these other places, in these other categories, in these other areas, even though other people will do that and they will push you to do the same. Instead, he says, know who you are. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Friends, did you know that to be in Christ means that you have been chosen by God? You remember in grade school, at recess... When everyone would get together to play kickball or dodgeball or baseball or soccer or whatever they were playing, and it was time to pick teams, and everyone would line up, does this happen to you? And everyone would line up against the wall, and then two kids would step out, and they would be captains, and then they would begin to select one at a time, choosing, choosing sides. Do you remember what it felt like to stand up against that wall? Do you remember what used to run through your mind? Please... Don't let me be last. I don't want to be like one of the last kids where they just go like, I don't want Timmy, you take Timmy. Okay, you'll take Timmy, right? No one wants to be Timmy. It feels awful to be Timmy, to have no one want you to not be chosen. Here is what Paul says. God picks you in Christ. He calls your name. He says, I want you on my team, friends. Remember the relief, the joy, the security, the feeling of acceptance in that moment? He says, in Christ you are holy. Some of you are thinking, I don't feel very holy. Here's what he means by that. He means you are set apart for a purpose. He, he picks you, he chooses you, and then he sets you apart for great purposes and plans that he has for your life in this world to advance his kingdom. He says you are holy, you are special to him. He says in Christ, you are dearly loved. And the actual Greek word there translates this way, beloved. In Christ you are Beloved, you are God's beloved. Now, here's the key. Here's the key. What the Bible teaches and what Paul is saying here is that real transformation, a real life that is lived in Christ, begins and comes out of not just an intellectual acceptance of some facts, that Jesus did some things and he was this person, but instead... Real transformation starts to happen when you begin to let this new reality of how much God loves you and how he chooses you and how you're saved and redeemed through his death and resurrection permeate the core of how you think about yourself. When you think about yourself, do you think about yourself as a saved, redeemed child of the Most High God? Because when you do, and as you do, and as more and more your identity begins to get shaped around this, 
transformation will start to flow out of your life. Because here is what most people miss. Most people miss this reality. People that are not Christians and so many people even that are followers of Jesus, they miss this truth. Your life flows out of your identity. Your life, the way you live, flows out of who you believe yourself to be. This is why we have to be so careful when it comes to our children. We've all experienced this. We've all seen this happen. Maybe this has happened to you. A child is told over and over and over again that they are stupid or fat or ugly or pretty or cute or funny. And slowly over time, after they've heard it, from people they love and people who have authority in their life, slowly they start to believe it. And it starts to weave its way in and become a part of their, of their identity. And so guess what happens to kids who are told all the time that they are bad? Telling them they're bad doesn't help them get better. They misbehave more and more because that is who they are and we all live out of who we believe we are. Or what happens when the only compliment you ever give your daughter is that she's pretty? She starts to think that how she looks is what makes her, her. And so you intended it for good, and yet the enemy can twist that around so fast. Friends, life, hear this, life is an inside-out thing. Who you are on the inside flows out and is played out on the outside. This is why time and time again, all through the Gospels, Jesus talks about changing your heart and transforming your identity and making things different in here so that then you can live differently out here. This is actually what people are declaring in baptism, by the way. When someone gets baptized, what they're doing is they're standing publicly and in a very physical way they are saying, a new reality now defines me. My identity is no longer founded on something I've done or achieved or earned or by a label people or society have put on me. From this point forward, they declare, in those waters... Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I am loved by God, chosen, set apart from sin, special. This is my new ident identity. And now I have the freedom to grow in that and live out of it. By the way, we have 17 people getting baptized this morning. They're going to be... Yeah, that's good stuff. A few right after this service, and so uh, if you want to stick around, we're going to have a few minutes where we just kind of an interlude. If you need to go, you can, but if you can stay, grab your kids, bring them in, let them experience it. Um, it's going to be a great morning where people say, new identity for me. Not the old identity, not the old me, but my new identity now is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, Paul writes, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I want to talk for just a second about the whole clothing deal because it happens a few times in the Bible. Paul likes to use this analogy. He says, take off these clothes or put off these clothes and then put on these clothes. And here's what he's getting at. He's saying this. What people wear on the outside is a reflection of who they are on the inside. 
that's actually not really tough to, to know. You just have to look around to see that this is true. If you go to the swimming pool, a swimmer is wearing a... A swimsuit. That's the right answer there. I'm a little nervous about this crowd right now. If you go to the swimming pool, a, a swimmer will be wearing a swimsuit. A skier will be wearing boots and bindings and skis. A judge will wear a black robe and hold a gavel. A football player puts on pads. A skydiver puts on a parachute. A cyclist wears those really tight spandex shorts with the diaper paddy thingy in the rear for extra cushion. And I know this because I recently tried cycling and I just couldn't bring myself to do the spandexy shorts thing. First of all, I'm a basketball player and that goes against everything we believe in in terms of shorts. Um, but second of all, I just had this image. I was really concerned for you. I just kept having this image that I'd be out cycling on the streets and that I would run into you and I thought, no one wants to see their pastor in those really tight spandexy things shorts. It will just ruin church for you forever. And so I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'll just wear my basketball shorts. But after like two rides with no cushion in the rear, I switched real quick. So now I have the spandexy thing shorts. So if you see me on the streets, just turn away. Just go. Just don't even... Don't strike, don't strike up a conversation. It'll just be awkward. Here's the point. Our, our, our clothes match who we are. Our identity at any given moment is reflected in what we wear. This is why you shouldn't go, you, you'd never show up to go hiking in like scuba gear, right? No. And so what Paul is saying here is this. When your identity is in Christ... In the love and grace and acceptance of God, when you know and believe on a core level that you are one of His children, then what will come out of your life, what you will wear, looks like these things. And then He gives us a few examples. The first one's compassion. When your identity is rooted in Christ, compassion will just flow out of how you live. The actual Greek phrase here, as Paul writes it, reads, bowels of compassion. It's kind of a weird phrase. The, the word for bowels in Greek is the word splachnon. Splachnon. It's like a Klingon word. Um, say it with me. Splachnon. That's fun. Okay, you see, the reason Paul writes this thing about bowels here in the middle of virtues is because the Greek people, they actually believed that a person's deepest, most powerful, fervent feelings manifest themselves, came out of the depth of their bowels. That's where your like, most passionate, fervent feelings came out of. And so Paul says, when you really know who you are in Christ, out of that identity will flow this powerful sense that you must do something about the suffering you see in the world. That's compassion, friends. It's not just pity. It's not just, I just feel bad. It's when I see injustice, when I see suffering, something inside of me wells up and pushes me to do something about it. That's what happens when your identity is rooted in Christ. Compassion just flows out of you. You just put it on. Next, there's kindness. Paul says, put on kindness. The word literally describes the lack of a cutting or jarring edge. In the ancient world, they used this word kindness to describe a fine wine that had been aged properly and it had lost its, its harshness, its, its bitter sort of sharp bite. One writer described kindness this way. He said, goodness by itself can be stern, but this is the goodness which is kind. It just doesn't have an edge to it. It just doesn't sting. The next thing that flows out of a life whose identity is found in Jesus is humility. 
And, and friends, this one actually makes perfect sense. This is the, the easiest sort of logical thought pattern to follow because this is what the gospel says. This is at the heart of the gospel. At the very center, if you receive Christ, at the very center of what now defines you is something that you did not earn, achieve, or even deserve in any way. The thing that most makes you, you, think about this for a minute. The thing that most makes you, you, if you are now in Christ, is something you did not earn or achieve or even deserve in any way. And when that's the case and you truly believe that, it is impossible for pride and arrogance and superiority to flow out of your life. It will just never be a byproduct. Because there's nothing actually for you to be proud or arrogant or superior about, right? One other thing about humility here, this is kind of a side note, but it's actually true of, of all of these virtues, but it's just glaringly obvious when it comes to humility. You cannot achieve it through your own effort. You cannot achieve it. Not, actually, none of these things you can really truly, in the way God wants you to, achieve them. You cannot achieve them by your own effort. Uh, that's a lie that Satan wants you to believe, actually. One of his favorite lies for Christians is this. You can be more, and then you fill in the blank, you can be more compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving, by simply trying harder. You know, you, could be, you should be a little more compassionate. Just work at it. You should be more humble. Just put some extra energy that way. Friends, have you ever tried real hard to be humble? Have you ever done this before? I know that you have, because I have. I mean, at the very least, you've tried to convince people that you were more humble, Right? Okay, no one wants to be honest today. That's okay. I'll just be the only one up here. It's impossible to be more humble through your own effort. It never works out. There are only two possible outcomes to trying harder to be more humble. A, you just fail. You just can't do it. You're just so not humble in and of yourself that you never even get there. Or B, you actually succeed at being more humble, and then instantly you feel proud about how your ability to achieve humility and it sort of cancels itself out. You see, true humility, along with all these other virtues, can really only come out of something that God does in you, not out of something that you work at on your own. It can only happen through something that God does in you. When your identity is in Christ, when God plants and grows that identity in your heart and soul, then these virtues like humility will start to come out. Then there's gentleness. Another virtue that Paul lists here, something that comes out of identity with Christ. And this is what Aristotle says about gentleness. The same word that Paul uses here, Aristotle actually talks about it. Ancient Greek philosopher, he says this, The happy mean between too much and too little anger. That's gentleness. The man who has gentleness is the man who is so self-controlled, so God-controlled, that he is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. He has the perfect combination of strength and weakness. Peter uses this same word and he talks about how we're to be gentle, we're to be strong and yet weak in the perfect combination when we talk to other people about the gospel, about Jesus. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with the perfect combination of strength and weakness mixed together, right? And do you think you can pull that off on your own? No way. Only through the Spirit of God. And then there's patience. Uh, He says, patience will flow out of your life when your identity is rooted in Christ. And the Greek word he uses here for patience is the word makrothrumia. Makrothrumia. There's actually two Greek words that describe patience. The one he doesn't use here is the word for patience with things, patience with for objects, patience for tasks. Some of you in this room can relate to that. You'll do like a home project. You're good at that stuff. Uh, most of the time, things go really smoothly for you. This is why I hate you. But also, sometimes, even when things go horribly wrong, you don't have the right tools and the parts don't fit and the thing doesn't work out at all and it takes you ten times as long as you planned. Even in those moments, some of you out there, you're just like a model of calm and serenity. This is not me. Some of you are like me. It's, it's like when you're doing a home project, your kids like tell each other, Dad's in the garage doing home projects. Hide, 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 right? Like, Mom, don't go out there. Luckily, this is not the kind of patience that Paul calls for in the Bible. So apparently, we're off the hook there. This is great. It's okay to throw tools in your garage. But it is not okay... To be impatient with people, because that's what macrothromia is about. It's about having patience for people. And what Paul is saying here is that when your identity is rooted in Christ and His grace and love for you, that people, even when they frustrate you or anger you or annoy you, you just have this amazing patience for them. It just comes out of knowing who you are in Jesus. And then in verse 13, he says this. He says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The first thing he says is bear with each other. And that literally means to hold yourself back from one another. Like a good picture here would be like a scuffle in a basketball game. You ever watch a basketball game? And they get into a fight? And I love to watch basketball players fight because they never really fight. It's like they're these huge, enormous guys with giant muscles and then they're all like tough and then they get in a fight and it's like, eh! right? Like you, I mean, like rarely do you even see a punch thrown. It's like a little bit of pushing and stuff. But they have to hold themselves back because they'll get thrown out of the game. And so like in this moment, if Dwight Howard and Damian Lillard got in a fight, you would really hope that Dwight would hold himself back, especially if you are a Trailblazers fan. Because I'm pretty sure Dwight could take him. I'm just guessing. It just seems that way to me. Um, So he says, first of all, bear with each other. Hold yourselves back in moments of anger and frustration and annoyance. But then he goes on to say, don't just hold yourselves back. Let it go. Then you forgive. In fact, he says, you hold yourself back and then you forgive. Forgive the way the Lord forgave you. And that is to say, forgive fully and completely and sacrificially and with no strings attached. And that kind of forgiveness is great to talk about in church. But friends, I'll tell you, when you've been hurt by someone you love, when you've been wronged, it gets real hard especially when you try to do it in your own strength. There's a person in my life right now, a person um, 
really close to me, a person that if you knew about the situation, you would just assume that things were great and that I have a, you know, a lot of love for them. And yet the truth of the matter is this person has hurt me. I'm feeling hurt. And I've honestly done a really good job. I'll just say to you, I've done a great job of holding myself back. I haven't been vengeful or mean or vindictive in any way. But forgiving, forgiving that person the way God has forgiven me, that's taken a little more work. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm still working at it. And I'm finding it difficult to muster up that kind of forgiveness in my own strength. It's going to have to come from someplace else. And then Paul says this, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity, the, the kind of the crowning characteristic of the Christian life, this thing that sort of sums up all these virtues, because love is, is patient and kind and not envious or boastful or proud or rude or self-seeking. And again, friends, I'll say it again, because so many of you are going to miss this. Do not leave church today and go out with the message that you need to try really hard to be a more compassionate person, gentle person, loving person, patient person. That is not the message. Go home and work on this stuff. I know some of you will do it. Some of you will walk out and you'll think, man, I've been really impatient with the kids lately. I just need to sort of rein it in. It's not going to work. It will not work. It may work for a day, or for a week, or maybe for some of you with really strong willpower, even a month. But if you want to really change, it's going to have to come from someplace else. Real, genuine, authentic transformation comes out of a heart that is more and more rooted in an identity in Christ. So the question is, well, then how do we do that? Like, if, if we're supposed to be all these things, compassionate and patient and kind and gentle, and we're supposed to exemplify these things more and more, and yet you're telling us, Pastor, don't work on being more of these things, how do we actually improve? How do we get there? How do we become a person whose identity is more rooted in Jesus? But Paul won't leave us hanging. He's going to let us know. Listen to these closing verses. He's going to give us some clues about how we actually do this, how we walk into and grow in an identity rooted in Christ. He says this, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now there there are three, I think, core principles Paul lifts out here, three things that we can do to not work on our behavior, to not improve who we are, but to actually open up our hearts and souls and let God in that he might be more and more at the center of our identity. See, this is inside work, not outside work. We do inside work so that the outside stuff happens more authentically in and through us. And here's the first thing that Paul says. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that word rule, it's actually the Greek word, it's, its closest equivalent would be like umpire. So let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. Let the peace of Christ call the balls and strikes in your world. Let the peace of Christ determine what you say and what you do and how you act and the decision you make, decisions you make. Instead of at the beginning of the day saying, here's the decisions I need to make. God, you can consult me and I'm going to make them. You say, let the peace of Christ determine what course of action will bring about the peace of Christ in my mind and heart. How often have you just asked God, God, will you just let the peace of Christ rule me today? Over and above my desires, over and above my ambitions, over and above my opinions or intellect, would the peace of Christ just be in control? Would you just do that today? The next thing Paul says is, let the word of Christ dwell. Actually, he says, let the message of Christ dwell. And the word dwell here means dwell. It means to be at home. It means to be comfortable. It means to reside. Here's the question. Does the word of God, does the message of God, does the God's spirit dwell in your soul? Does it, does it fill at home there? When the word of God comes into your life, does it just feel so at home and so comfortable like it's been there a thousand times before? He's not just visiting. He doesn't show up with suitcases and live out of a bag for three days. He's moved in. He's taken over the house. He's sleeping in your bed. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He feels so at home. The Word of God feels so at home in your life. Friends, that only happens when you dwell on the Word of God. I know it sounds so simple, But do you think that you're going to be changed, that your identity in Christ is going to be changed if you don't read your Bible? Spend time in worship? You see there, it says, it talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why does he, why does he focus on that? First of all, this is a church that doesn't have a Bible. They don't have like 12 translations and six apps on their phone with access to the Word of God. So they don't have that. You know what they have? They have songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And furthermore, what's maybe the best way to learn truth about God? How does your memory operate best? How many in here have memorized more Bible verses than song lyrics? No one. So sing songs filled with truth that the message of God might dwell in your soul. You could go on and on there. Let me wrap things up. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell. And finally, let the name of Christ drive. And this last one's a little harder because the words aren't quite as, ex- as explicit. And here's what Paul says. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And here's just a real simple way to think about this. Would I put the name of Jesus on the words that I say or the actions that I do? Would I just stick a Jesus sticker, a Jesus label? Would I brand Jesus onto the conversation that I had with my friend last night? Onto the television programs that I'm watching at home with my kids or by myself? 
Would I feel good about putting the name of Jesus on the words that I speak and the life that I live? Let me just give you a generic example. Some of you, you have those little fishy thingies on the like, bumpers of your car. Some of you have that? The fish? They're not as popular in Portland, which I'm actually happy to see because it turns into the war where then, like, the Darwin fish is eating the Jesus, then the Jesus fish is eating Darwin. It's like this big thing, which I don't get. But some of you just have the plain old Jesus fish on your car. I don't have that. I don't do the fishy thingy. You know why? I'm a really bad driver. <laughs> Jesus wants no association with my driving whatsoever. I break a lot of rules. I speed a lot. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder thinking, I hope no one from church saw me do that, <laughs> let alone the police. And, and again, it's not a good thing because what the scriptures say is, hey, let every part of your life like, be proud to bear the name of Christ. But my driving isn't, so I don't put a fishy thing on my car. So, but what about you? Where in your life are you a little hesitant to put the brand of Jesus on it? What friend do you have frequent conversations with and you think, ah, I don't know if Jesus wants to claim this one? What habit or pattern or action? Are you involved in that you're, you're just not sure Jesus wants his name on that? It's just a great way to start to understand what it means to live out of who you are in Christ. And then last thing, I want to notice this, this last thing because it's just a fun point to make and I think it's worth saying because Christians need to hear this. In these verses, in these final three verses, there's also another theme that's kind of woven through that Paul just weaves through these three kind of principles that he offers us in terms of shaping our souls to be identified with christ he says this these three phrases i'll I'll just highlight them on the screen he says be thankful and he says do it with gratitude and then he says give thanks do you notice the theme there and i'll just summarize what paul is saying here these are my words not his this is kind of the dave international version here's what i believe the message is here don't be grumpy seriously don't be grumpy Don't be a grumpy Christian. That can't possibly happen. There is nothing worse than a grumpy Christian. Hi, I'm Bill, and Jesus died for my sins, and I've been saved and redeemed for all eternity by the God of the universe, and I just have some things to complain about constantly. Does that work? How does that work? It doesn't work. Don't be a grumpy Christian. It's an awful thing. It's it's the fastest way to squelch. The identity of Christ growing in your soul. Instead, Paul says, be thankful and give praise and give thanks. Have gratitude. Be filled with gratitude. You see, it's impossible to live in the identity of Christ and just be like a sourpuss. It doesn't work. So this morning, friends, I'm going to give you a chance just to think about this for a minute. To think about where you need to let the word of God and the message of God dwell in your life and how that might look and how you might do that more that your soul might be shaped and and where the peace of Christ needs to rule and where the name of Christ needs to drive a little bit more. I want you to spend a little time with Jesus on that today. And then when you're ready, come to the table and make the declaration. I still don't live up, Lord. I've still fallen short. But you love me and you stick with me and you died for me, and your body and your blood, they cover my sin, and they give me grace to step forward in living out who you want me to be still.
So spend a little time with the Lord. I'm going to pray. And then when you're ready, come to the table. Take the elements back to your seat and receive them on, on your own when you're ready. Pray with me, though. Father, thank you for... for not just giving us another self-help book or self-improvement plan, but thank you that you would send your Son and your Spirit to change us from the inside out. God, help us to know how to receive you, how to embrace you, how to open ourselves up that we might be more defined, not by ourselves, but by your Son, his death and resurrection. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.